0: For cultivating progress across the South, for working to unconditionally improve the lives of all, and for the bold underwriting of every Gravy podcast, SFA thanks our visionary Louisville, Kentucky friends, Pam and Brooke Smith. The author and folklorist J. Frank Dobie said, the boundaries of culture and rainfall never follow survey lines. It's not a surprise to learn that Dobie was from South Texas, a place shaped by the culture of both Mexico and the American West.
1: In this episode of Gravy, Evan Stern invites us to follow him as he samples the taste of this territory through one of its prized delicacies, cabrito. Made like most extraordinary barbecue from a singular ingredient, in this case, milk-fed baby goats, slaughtered before they ever taste grass, and by pitmasters who are drawing on generations of knowledge and skill.
0: With Cabrito, South Texas, Northern Mexico, and the Spanish Empire can all converge at a cookout on a ranch. I'm Melissa Hall. And I'm Mary Beth Lasseter. You're listening to Gravy. Gravy. Gravy.
2: Gravy. Gravy.
1: A production of the Southern Foodways Alliance, Gravy tells the stories of the changing American South.
0: Evan Stern pulls into the Double Y Ranch.
3: The Nueces River rises out of the Edwards Plateau, north of Uvalde, and flows for about 315 miles before snaking its way to the Gulf of Mexico. Once the geographic boundary between Texas and the Mexican states of Coahuila and Tamaulipas, driving below it can still feel like crossing a border of sorts, as this region, called the Nueces Strip, maintains a cultural identity that almost feels like a province unto itself. Flat, brushy, and isolated. For some, its beauty can take a while to reveal itself. But I sense its charm almost immediately upon entering the gates of Gilbert Aguirre's Double Y Ranch. Perched off a dusty, mesquite-lined road about 17 miles below the town of Alice, I've been invited here by Mr. Aguirre's nephews, my friends Peter and Joe Avila. But the first to greet me upon arrival is their cousin, Refugio, who slaps me on the back and tells me to call him Coquin. A McAllen-based auto worker who spent years in Detroit, his roots in South Texas run deep and tells me he's proud to call this area home.
4: Well, this is the real, real Texas. This is where the, the Alamo was run two hours from here, right? And we have, we take pride on that. We take pride that we're part of that history, right? Being Mexican-Americans,
3: right? It's a little after 10 a.m. on the Sunday before Thanksgiving, and we're talking by a fire pit outside his uncle's stuccoed ranch house. His aunt's are busy inside preparing a breakfast of eggs, tortillas, and hot chocolate for about a dozen who spent the night. By dusk, these numbers will more than double as four generations of family spanning the ages of 11 to 83 Well, to send here for what Peter Avila tells me has become a traditional pre-holiday cookout. I
4: believe we're probably, what, at about 33 count, 33, 34 count of of, uh, family that came from as far as Monterrey. Uh, We've got some that came from San Antonio. Uh, We have family that came from Kyle, Texas. When we know we're going to come to the ranch, it's going to be a gathering of of good food, uh, some some tasty beverage, and uh, good times, good platicas. If you
3: don't speak Spanish, a platica, is a conversation, and over breakfast, I end up having one with Peter's sister, Patty. Like many, she tells me the Avila's and Aguirre's lost loved ones to the pandemic, and that gatherings like this are cause for thanks and celebration. Mm -hmm. Yet today feels especially momentous because for the first time in all their years of hosting this get-together, they're gearing up to roast a Cabrito. Prized for its succulent and tender meat, a Cabrito is a baby goat no more than six weeks old. that has been strictly nourished on a diet of mother's milk.
5: If there's gonna be cabrito, it's gonna be special. And the flavor is wonderful. If it is cabrito, cabrito, and I hope there's plenty for everybody.
3: That's Rosa Canales. An educator, poet, musician, and friend of the Avilas. I met her and her husband, Joe Perez, at their home in Olmito, just outside Brownsville, about a week before today's feast. We talked about cabrito for nearly an hour. It was an easy conversation topic for them as our discussion unlocked many childhood memories.
5: The cabrito thing was always a Sunday thing. My grandmother made wonderful cabrito and my mother learned to make it from her. Especially when we were at the ranch, she cooked it on a on a wood stove and my father always insisted for presentation that she put some thinly sliced tomatoes on top and thinly sliced onions. It's just the most wonderful flavor.
3: Raised in the town of Hebronville, about an hour between the Double Y and Laredo, she learned about the value goat carries in this region at age five.
5: My mother and I went to the church bazaar in Hebronville, the Catholic Church Bazaar in the Plaza. And my mother played Loteria, which is like Mexican bingo, and she won a goat. But that's how the special the goat culture is in South Texas and uh, that it's a prize. You win it as a prize when you play Mexican bingo at a church bazaar.
3: Cabrito has been famously embraced in South Texas and Northern Mexico as a meal that served to mark the arrival of spring on Easter Sundays. Its journey in reaching this point has been long and winding. Domesticated over 10,000 years ago in ancient Persia, Following generations of trade, goats were brought to the New World with the arrival of conquistadors. Goat became part of the cuisine of northern Mexico through Spanish Sephardic Jewish shepherds who, faced with the Inquisition's policies of forced Catholic conversion, turned to goat as a staple to maintain kosher practice in secret. Eventually, starting in the 16th century, many of these secret adherents began making their way to Mexico. They settled in what would become the northeastern state of Nuevo León, whose remoteness and harsh climate provided a semblance of refuge. There, these herders spit roasted goat in the fields, al pastor, or shepherd style. Over the years, its popularity spread beyond, and this cooking process continues on ranches on both sides of the border and select restaurants in cities like Monterey, Saltillo, and McAllen. Houston-based chef and culinary historian Adán Medrano also tells me it was a rare treat for his migrant worker father, who couldn't hide his joy when given the chance to eat it.
2: My memory of cabrito is one where I'm seated at a table and my father has ordered a plate of cabrito and uh, to see the, uh, the beaming face. And that's very important because I want to cook in a way that people will have that look.
3: Adon was born and raised in San Antonio. It wasn't easy to find cabrito there when he was growing up, but tells me it's something his father looked forward to on return trips to his hometown of Navacohuila. Adon says that as a child, frequent travels there shaped his worldview. For that, he advocates for discussing this region's food in a way that looks beyond present-day geopolitical boundaries.
2: I now look at South Texas and Northeastern Mexico as one landscape. This land is landscape first. And uh, how a chef or a home cook relates to the landscape, uh, that's where flavors come out.
3: Landscape is a word Adon returns to often, and has written at length on the subject of terroir, or the combination of natural environmental factors that contributes flavor to foods and wine. When I ask him how Cabrito is reflective of the terroir of South Texas, he says he has mixed feelings. Yes, Cabrito can be delectable, but As a foreign animal, like pigs and cows, goats' grazing practices changed the ecology of this continent. And for Adan, those changes are a constant reminder of the legacy of colonialism in the region.
2: Goats changed the terroir terroir of this region. And we have to live with with the changes that they made. And um, to say that they are a uprising or an expression of the terroir is to say we were colonized and we had to deal with this or die. And so when you relate terroir with cabritos, it's a story of survival and survival with, uh, with beauty. It is an occasion to, to think about how it is that over 500 years we Mexican-American indigenous people have survived through horrible, horrible uh, attacks. And yet, what is the response? The The response is, let's serve a table where all are welcome and everyone may eat this cabrito.
1: When we come back, we'll explore the ethics of cabrito and meet a cook who's putting her own spin on the dish. But first...
0: Lodge Cast Iron is a favorite among home cooks and chefs across the South. That's because their American-made cast iron helps bring great recipes to life, whether you're cooking over a campfire, grill, in the oven, or on a stovetop. Feed a crowd with a classic cast iron Dutch oven, or fry something new in an iconic skillet. And for all the pan fans out there, the Lodge Museum of Cast Iron helps you celebrate Southern cooking, culture, and food ways. Enjoy a day trip to beautiful South Pittsburgh, Tennessee, to visit the world's largest cast iron skillet and shop in the Lodge factory store. Go to lodgecastiron.com to learn more. For their dedication to quality cookware and longtime support of the Gravy Podcast, SFA Thanks
3: Lodge.
2: <laughs>
3: Back at the ranch, Peter and Kukin introduced me to their cousin, Mundo Agidi who's preparing a saltwater bath for the goat he drove up yesterday from Monterey. The son of an orchard owner from Nueva León, Mundo first tasted cabrito in the markets, where his father sold oranges, and through years of trial and error, eventually learned how to cook it himself. Since he couldn't fit the rick he uses for al pastor roasting in his car, today's cabrito will be grilled. So, around 1 o'clock, having cleaned the cooking surface with an onion, he removes the goat from its brine, and with the help of his wife Luce coats it with a rub of oil, garlic, oregano, and lime. Then he and Peter's younger brother Joe move it to an exposed brick oven where it'll cook slowly over indirect mesquite coals for the next 4 hours. Meanwhile inside, Luce has butchered another goat and filled the kitchen with the aromas of chile de árbol, onions, and tomatillo. She's stewing a guisada de cabrito that will go a long way towards feeding today's dozens of mouths. Now, I can't wait to try all of this, but not everyone here shares my excitement, which is why Joe is cooking up some beef fajitas on an outdoor pit.
4: You know, people think of, a, you know, just as a little goat, you know, killing a goat, and then plus, I guess, the gaminess, if there is any. You know, they don't like that. So, like, the kids might not like the cabrito. Some might, but... Easily. My son's going to try it for the first time.
3: Yeah? You excited to try the cabrito? No.
0: <laughs>
3: I don't like the feeling of eating a baby goat. Because <laughs> they sacrifice their life to, for us to eat it. <laughs> Joe's son brings up an ethical issue that's hard to ignore in relation to cabrito, veal, and frankly, most meat consumption. But for Adon Medrano, questions of morality touch all foods we eat.
2: Uh, we, we, and there's an expression in Spanish, lo sacrifican, you sacrifice it. Because you know it it has to be, otherwise you'll die. And when the cow eats, something dies, grass dies. This, this is the process of violence that I see in food all the time, and uh, we have to deal with it. For Adán,
3: how the baby goat is killed and lives its life is what matters. One who shares this view is Rosa Canales' husband, Joe Perez. A retired teacher who plays with Rosa, as the duo Rumbo a la Nacua. their mission is to preserve the musical traditions performed around South Texas's backyard tables. Joe grew up assisting his butcher grandfather on a ranchito outside the town of Premont. There, alongside calves and pigs, they raised grass-fed goats, or chivos, whose slaughters they respected by ensuring no parts went to waste.
2: I remember little kids coming over to my grandmother's and saying, can you sell me 25 cents worth of meat, you know? Yeah. And that was my first job as, as his helper was to hold on to the leg, to stretch out the leg on the carcass so that he could skin comfortably.
3: Joe told me he never got cash for this work, but that his grandfather had other ways of helping him out.
2: He didn't pay me, he would give me the offal, the, the intestines and hearts and lungs and stuff, the awful, and, uh, and I would sell it to, to ladies in the neighborhood and stuff and, and they would always make the traditional Mexican foods with it, like machitos, and, uh, and that's how I made my spending money. Machito, which some call Texas haggis,
3: is made from the goat's innards, which are wrapped and cooked in a neat package of visceral lining tied with tripe. Like barbacoa, it was born of working rural people who sought to waste no resources. And upon hearing its mention, Rosa immediately chimed in from across the room.
5: It looked like a burrito, the machito. They would boil them first to make sure that they were tender and and to leak out some of the fat. And then they would either put them in the oven or put them on an, an open fire outside. But you would get the crispy fat, the crispiness of the little intestines, the tripitas that had been used to wind this cylindrical machito full of of liver and and kidneys and and lung, all the lung is wonderful, but you slice it and you put a piece in a corn tortilla and you make a taco out of the machito. So even though it is very strong tasting and then with a little bit of salsa, um, it's such a delicacy, you know what you're doing.
3: Machito isn't an item that's easily found on American menus, but for that matter, neither is cabrito. Restaurants that spit roast them in the traditional El Pastor style are nearly impossible to find outside the Rio Grande Valley. And those who do, like La Fogata in Mission and McAllen's El Pastor, are a rare relatively new phenomenon. Yet Cabrito can now be found generally in taco form at select places in most of Texas's major cities. Silvia Casares, owner of Silvia's Enchilada Kitchen in Houston, even offers it in the approachable form of an enchilada.
6: It was a natural thing for us because we already were cooking it and we we're already deboning it and presenting it. So, of course, the natural thing for us to do was to offer it in, in an enchilada. We already do it in a taco, so we're putting it in a, in a corn tortilla that's been seasoned and saucing it and then baking it. And so and the cabrito lovers can enjoy the, uh, I, I would say, the enhanced flavor of the cabrito with the sauce.
3: Traditionally, when ordering cabrito at a restaurant, patrons are given the option to pick a cut, like a leg or shoulder, which are served with sides of beans, grilled onions, salsa, lime, and tortilla for taco making. Considering this, the concept of a Cabrito enchilada may strike certain purists as unorthodox. Yet Sylvia respects Cabrito's history, and as her kitchen is specifically focused on the foodscape of South Texas and Northern Mexico, felt important to include it in her offerings.
6: With me being, um, A restaurant that serves food of the Texas-Mexican border, I felt like that was a void I had in my menu.
3: Having worked as a food scientist before entering the restaurant industry, Sylvia brings a scholar's approach to her cooking. So when she decided to add Cabrito to her menu, she took a research trip to Monterey to learn the traditional method.
6: All of our grilled meats are cooked on Mesquite grill. So we're burning wood here 12 hours a day and so we cook it very, very slowly, and, uh, and it ends up finishing off, uh, cooking it very, very slow in the oven.
3: Still, supply for Cabrito is limited north of the border. And when bought through a distributor, a single eight pound goat can easily fetch in the range of $125. For this, Sylvia doesn't see it making the leap from ranch cookouts to mainstream dining anytime soon.
6: It's a high food cost item. It's a smaller market, if you will of people that know Cabrito. You had to have been from Mexico or have traveled down there and experienced eating it. It's just not, it's not a masses uh, delicacy.
3: And again, Cabrito's uniqueness is so much of what's made this day at the ranch a truly special occasion. Having sustained ourselves with Luz's comforting guisado, after an afternoon of target practice, football laughs, and a steady flow of corona, Nearing six, with the sunset behind us. To the sound of applause, the men carefully pull the goat off the grill. Mundo chops it up, generously gives me a shoulder and portion of ribs, and I pile my plate with beans and rice. The char is perfect, the meat is tender, and a kind of calm briefly takes over the occasion. Then, following the cowboy's victory over the Vikings, as the kids busy themselves making s'mores, Some of us crack open another round of beers by the fire. Speaking in Spanish, Coquín says today is all about family unity and tradition.
4: For
3: me, this exchange again calls to mind Adon and what he said about looking at the regions of South Texas and Northern Mexico as one landscape. As a shared dish, Cabrito might be a symbol of just that. And those cross-border connections play out in the Avila and Aguirre families, too.
4: Earlier today, we had three of our our nephews from Monterrey tossing a football with an American nephew that they have never met. But just watching them throw the football brought unity. They couldn't communicate, but just through playing, they had some fun. And so I think that's most important down here is uh, we get together, everybody has fun, and we enjoy our time. At the same time, we bring out the cabrito, which is something of delicacy, like my uncle says, and it makes the evening extra special.
2: a song we would have probably sang while the cabrito was cooking
0: on the grill. Evan Stern produced and reported this episode. Enjoy his work? Subscribe to and like his podcast, Vanishing Postcards, named one of the best podcasts of 2022 by Digital Trends.
1: We thank Wendell Patrick for Gravy's theme music, Dizar for our donor music.
0: Special thanks for this episode go to fact checker Katie King and editor Olivia Terenzio. Managing
1: Editor for Gravy and all other SFA media is Sarah Camp Milam. My co-host, Mary Beth Lassiter, serves as our publisher.
0: Visit us at southernfoodways.org to listen and engage with our oral history collection, including new histories on icing-drenched, color-sugar-fueled tours of King Cake Bakers in South Louisiana.
1: And while you're there, please consider becoming a member
0: or making a donation.
1: Your dollars fund our work and help us make more gravy.